Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and 31 and 38 say, Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Uh, this past week, uh, something that me and Kay like to do together, or we'll do devotions, and we each take turn picking devotions for us to go through. And the one that we started this week is called Imperfect Christmas. Imperfect Christmas. And one of the devotionals that we were reading this week, it's called Humble Beginnings, and it's by a guy named Danny Saavedra. Saavedra. And he said something in uh, this devotional that really stood out to me. In talking about Mary, he calls back to Luke 138, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. He says this, look at the humility she displayed here. Her response to this insane, impossible, frankly terrifying news. She was betrothed, unmarried virgin, likely between 12 and 14 when she was told she'd have a child. And what she said was, I am the Lord's servant. She knew no one would believe her, that this would likely be a scandalous and dangerous thing. Joseph could have had her publicly shamed or stoned to death for being pregnant as his betrothed, since he was not the biological father. But she trusted God. She believed in him and his word. She made herself available to be used by God to do his work. She knew she wasn't equipped for the call God had given her, but she surrendered her life, will, and future into his hands because she trusted he would be with her every step of the way. This is all the Lord needs from us in order to accomplish wonders in our own lives and the lives of the people around us. He doesn't need us to be highly skilled, extremely super qualified geniuses. He certainly uses people with amazing skills, talents, resources, and abilities, just as he uses untrained fishermen, poor widows, and outcasts. But it's not a prerequisite for him to do his best work. Instead, God does his best work in the lives of those who are humble, available, and willing to be used. It's not about what you can do, but what you allow him to do in and through you. He blesses those who declare, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And as we come into the Christmas season, I just think of Mary often and the faith that she had to, you know, to say, God, whatever you're asking me to do, I'll do it. Like, I'm your servant. And, you know, the song said, Mary, did you know? And I'm, I'm not sure she knew exactly everything that would happen, but because of her willingness, you know, she was used by God to bring his son into this world and, and what he did when he got here, going to the cross, uh, dying and raising from the raising from the grave for us. It's an amazing thing. And this morning we can celebrate knowing that we've been forgiven, that we've been saved. Uh, we didn't deserve it, but God didn't say, okay, you don't deserve it. No, he sent a son for us. And that gives us reason to celebrate. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you so much for Mary and her willingness to say, hey, I'm your servant. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. And God, because of that, you used her to, to bring your son into this world. And God, you sent him to, to be our atoning sacrifice. Father, you sent him to bring forgiveness. And God, I just thank you for that because without it, we would be lost. Thank you for all that you've done for us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. There are tables in the corners of the room whenever you're ready.
Well, good morning again. Uh, I forgot to mention this during welcome, but I, I thought I'll—I thought I would say it now. You know, Noah said it's finally Christmas time, but I tell you, it's been Christmas time for me since the beginning of November. You might be one of those people too. The November is when Christmas begins, type of people. Uh, I've had Christmas music playing in the office, in the car. Uh, you know, I think it annoys Kay because we have Christmas music playing on Sunday mornings on the way here. Um, but I bring that up because I kind of wanted to start this morning by giving you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going to be uh, for the next uh, several weeks. And, you know, after this morning, we're going to uh, leave Paul alone for a little bit. Uh, going to get out of the book of Acts for a few weeks. Uh, we are going to spend some time talking about the characters of Christmas, those people who are involved in the Christmas story and uh, how their lives were impacted by uh, the arrival of Christ. Uh, and so we'll spend a few weeks talking about that. And then at the beginning of December, uh, we're going to be uh, talking about hindsight, and, and the importance of hindsight, hindsight, looking back to look ahead. And, you know, there's been a lot of things that God has been doing in our lives and the life of this church in the past year. Uh, some good things, some kind of difficult things. But in all of these things, we grow and we learn and we, uh, we look at those things and we, we move forward. Uh, when you read through scripture, one of the things that we're called to do often is remember. We're called to remember God. We're called to remember what he's done in our lives all the time. Remember, remember what has taken place. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look back on the previous year and we're going to remember and we're going to talk about how uh, the things that we've gone through, the way that we've grown, the way that we've learned is going to impact going forward. And so I'm really excited about that. And then January and February will be in Acts, and we will finish the book of Acts in February and uh, start moving into Easter. It's already pretty close. It's crazy to believe that we are that close to the end of the year and close to Easter. Uh, crazy to think about. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18. If you want to turn to Acts 18, or if you follow along on version, you can... Uh, follow along on there. And as you're getting to Acts chapter 18, uh, many of you probably know this about me, some of you may not, but I am a movie buff. I am a film fanatic. I, I love movies. I love the theater experience. Uh, you know, I love that there's all these streaming services, but I do not, you know, love the fact that the movie theater, and I get why, I get why, but I love going to the movie theater, and it's been good to be back around a bunch of people watching movies, uh, that communal experience. I love movies. But not only do I love movies, I love how movies are made. Like, I love everything that goes into the making of a movie. You know when you buy a movie, and there's those, like, extra discs that are in the back that you never put in the, the Blu-ray player or DVD player that just collect dust? Like, I watch those discs. Like, I am all about how things are made. And there's something I've noticed about 
the making of a movie or a TV show. There seems to be three main people who, you know, are in charge of a movie. There's the writer. Without a good story, it doesn't matter who you bring in. If the story's not good, the movie isn't going to be good. You got the director. The director is in charge of steering the vision, right? They're in charge of uh, making sure that everything goes according to the script. And then you have the producer, and the producer is important because the producer gives you the money. Without the money, you can't make the movie, so you have the producer, the director, and the writer. Those are the three that, that steer the project ahead. But then, underneath them, you have different heads for different departments of the movie, right? Like, you have a good makeup crew, you have the person in charge of that, and, and, they have, or, and you have a cinematographer who's in charge of you know, shooting the film, you have uh, the lead actor who gets top billing, they're the reason you see the movie sometimes, right? Like, that name is attached to the poster, and you automatically say, oh, I gotta see this movie, the person is in this movie, I gotta see this movie. But then, underneath them, not even, I wouldn't even say underneath them, beside them is the best way to word this, beside them are the people that are next to them who are helping them make that happen. So a person who is in charge of uh, wardrobe, they have people working with them to make sure everybody gets the wardrobe stuff that they need, right? And think about it, we talk about how good a, a lead actor is and that's the name on the poster and that's the person we want to see, the Oscars has, a, has tons of categories for awards. Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor. A supporting cast is just as important as the lead, and a lot of times when you walk out of a movie, you remember the supporting character sometimes more than you remember the lead. And so all of these different things go into making a movie or a TV show and as I think about that, I can kind of see something similar in Acts chapter 18. Paul is continuing his mission trip, and he's uh, moving into Corinth, and we see kind of this idea play out, you know, the same kind of things that happen in making a movie, we see it working in the life of Paul and his companions. And so, we are in Acts 18, and uh, there's a couple of lessons that we can learn from Acts 18 that I think compare to what we talk about when we talk about the making of a movie. And so, we're going to start in verse 1 and work through verse 8, and it says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So I'm going to stop there for just a second. Uh, we see that Paul has arrived in Corinth. Corinth was a center of communication. It was a commercial center for uh, the Roman world. It had a Jewish minority. It was mostly made up of Greeks, but it was also a very immoral place. Read 1 Corinthians, and you will see that Corinth struggled with immorality. It was something that uh, Paul writes to them about frequently. Uh, and, and what's interesting is by the time that Paul arrives to Corinth, Corinth is actually kind of a new place. Now, Corinth had existed beforehand, but it had been destroyed. And then we see uh, Julius Caesar in 44 BC come in 
and fix up Corinth, rebuild Corinth. And so by the time Paul gets there, uh, most buildings in Corinth were less than 100 years old. And so Corinth is pretty much a new place by the time Paul arrives. And when he gets there, he meets a Jew named Aquila, who was a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered them to leave Rome. And so this is pretty interesting. Why did Claudius kick out the Jews from Rome? Well, this is actually interesting for two reasons. First of all, it's interesting because this is where Paul is heading. Everything that Paul is doing is leading him to Rome. He's going to all these different places, but Rome is the end goal. It is the vision. It is the place that he wants to make it to most. He is heading in the direction of Rome. And so by the time he gets to Rome, we can see that there have already been people there in Rome who have heard about Jesus. And so by the time he gets there, he's not starting from scratch. He already knows that there are people in Rome who have heard about Jesus. The other thing, the other reason this is important is because we see Claudius has kicked the Jews out of Rome. Why is this? Well, the reason for this comes to us from a man named Suetonius. And Suetonius was a Roman historian. And one of the things that he wrote about was the life of Claudius. And this was Claudius Caesar. And the reason for this that... Uh, Suetonius tells us, is that there were riots in Rome between the Jews and the, the believers, the Christian believers. It says that this uh, conflict was instigated by Crestus. Now, a lot of people believe that Crestus was actually a mispronunciation of Christus. And so the belief is that the conflict was between the Jews and the Christians, and it was getting so out of hand that Claudius Caesar, his best idea was, okay, just get rid of the Jews, you're gone. You have to leave. You're out. He doesn't want this conflict. Just get rid of the Jews. Get rid of the believers. You are all gone. You're out of here. And so because of this, they leave and they end up in Corinth. And so he comes into Corinth and, and Paul meets these two and they are tent makers just as he was. And so he stays with them and he works with them. It's just an amazing thing when we read through the book of Acts, all the times that you know, they're going from place to place to place, and they always find that they have what they need, right? Like they, they have places to stay. They have people that they can work with, that they can live with, that they're taken care of wherever they go. You know, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. And so they go and they're working as tent makers. Now, uh, tent makers is what you would think. They made tents, but it's also likely that tent maker meant more than just tent maker. It also meant leather worker. And so uh, they would work as leather workers, tent makers, to make a living, to make a wage. What this tells us here is that Paul was bivocational right now. He was trying to minister, but he also had to work to make a living. This tells us that he probably stayed in Corinth for a little longer than just a few weeks. He was probably there for uh, quite a few years. It tells us at least he was there a year and a half, uh, but likely longer than that. And so 
uh, it tells us in verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Now, while he was working on tents, he did not forget what he was called to do. His job, his task was to preach the gospel. It was to talk to the Jews and the Greeks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was his purpose. That's what he was called to do. And so he did not stop doing what he was supposed to be doing while he was still working in his, uh, I, I his side job, his uh, side hustle, if you will. Um, and so he is doing that. And then in verse 5, it tells us, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia... Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. They meet up with Paul and Corinth, and it tells us that because they got here, he was now able to focus on ministry full-time. He was able to do the task that God had called him to do full-time. The reason for this likely is because of financial gifts that were given to him. A matter of fact, Philippians 4, 15 through 19 tells us that Paul had received a gift from the church in Philippi. He was able to use this gift to continue his work. He didn't have to focus on other things to make money. He was now able to fully focus on what God had called him to do. And so he does that. He goes and he preaches and he testifies to the Jews about who Jesus was, but they do what they always do. They start to oppose him. It seems like everywhere Paul preaches, he has the Jews rising up against him, opposing him. And it says, when they got abusive, he shook out his clothes, uh, shaking the dirt out of his clothes. We talked about that earlier in Acts when they did that with the, the Jews and how it was an insult turned around on the Jews. But then he says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This kind of is an allusion to Ezekiel 33.7. And in Ezekiel 33.7, you know, God talks about how if I set up a watchman and the watchman spots danger and the watchman tells you, hey, danger is coming and you choose not to do anything about said danger, then whatever happens to you happens to you and that's your fault. And so he tells him the same thing here. You know, I've come, I've preached, I've reasoned with you. If you choose not to listen, if you choose to ignore it, then someday you will have to stand before God and give an account. You will have to uh, bear testimony in front of God. And if God is not pleased with you, then that's on you because you chose not to listen. You chose not to receive that word. And so he goes on. And in verse 7 it says, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And so he, he shakes the dirt off. He goes and he stays with Titus Justus. He stays with Crispus, a synagogue leader. And, or and Crispus, him and his whole family believe in the Lord. They, they hear the word, they believe. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 mentions Crispus and mentions how he became a believer. And so, uh, big things happening here. Even in the face of opposition, God's still doing amazing things. But here is the first thing that I think we can take from this, the first lesson, and it's this. 
ministry is a team sport. Ministry is a team sport. So when you read through the book of Acts and you read through all of the travels and all of the journeys, you can find things that are common. Like I said earlier, they had places to stay. They had people who helped support them, had people who helped encourage them, had people who were walking beside them, uh, you know, helping them through uh, what they were called to do. It wasn't just Paul, it wasn't just Peter, it wasn't just the twelve, it was other people gathering around and helping them to do what God had called them to do. And this is an important thing to remember, ministry is a team sport. Ministry is not meant to be only a select few doing the whole work of the church, it's meant to be everybody working together to make sure the gospel is shared, to make sure that lives are changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4 through 7 tell us this, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Ephesians 4, 16 tells us from, the, or from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And you know, I am so happy, so glad that I serve in a place that loves to serve. And, and you know, we're coming out of, of Thanksgiving, and, and I just want to say, and I, can, I can't speak for Cody, but I'm sure he would tell you the same thing. We appreciate everything you guys do. Your willingness to serve, your desire to serve, and we have a lot of opportunities here to serve, and we have so many people who want to serve, who want to be involved, who want to do things for the kingdom, and that's important because that's what God calls us to. Ministry is a team sport. Paul had people uh, coming beside him, Priscilla, Aquila, uh, Titus, Justice, these people supporting him, helping him, uh, Silas and Timothy bringing a financial gift that came from uh, Philippi. The other churches were supporting them uh, in prayer and finances. Ministry is a team sport. It's all of us working together to make sure people hear the good news. Uh, text continues now in verse 9, and it says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. And so one night Paul is sitting there, lying there, being there, whatever, and he has a vision, and it's the Lord speaking to him, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Imagine what Paul must have been thinking after he receives this vision. Thank goodness, everywhere this man goes, he is drove out of the city. And so for him to have this reassurance, hey, there are people I know here, they're not going to harm you, you are good, keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. He must have thought, that is a relief. I don't want to get, you know, dragged out of the city, I don't want to get pushed out, I can have assurance that nothing is going to happen. And then we get an example of this. 
So it says in, in verse 12, while uh, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, uh, Galileo uh, is known by scholars, but he doesn't, there's not a lot about this man. But one thing we do know, he's a proconsul, which means he speaks uh, for a council. A council appoints him to be the, the figurehead, the person who speaks for them. This man, though, is known mostly for his brother. His brother was a philosopher named Seneca, and not only was this man a philosopher, he's known because who he tutored and who he advised. This man was the tutor and advisor to Nero, who will play a big part of the book of Acts later and is a big part of the ministry of Paul in Rome. He will go head-to-head -head with Nero. And so uh, this is important just in the fact that this man is uh, related to a guy who will advise and tutor Emperor Nero. And uh, they decide, while this man is in town, let us make a united attack on Paul. And they bring him and they charge him with the fact that this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, it doesn't tell us what it means by the law. This could mean one of two things. They could be bringing the charge that these people are preaching and telling us to worship different than the Roman law, or this man is telling us to worship or uh, follow gods that are contrary to the Jewish law. Why is this important? Well, he's going to hear one and not the other. He would be concerned if it was Roman law that was at stake, but because it's Jewish law, Jews handled their own law, their own trials, and so this man wouldn't need to hear this. And it's likely that it's Jewish law because of the way he responds in verse 14. It says, just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questioning, or questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sothenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. So he hears this, and he tells him, you know what, this isn't a serious crime. It's not some serious uh, charge. It's not a misdemeanor. I don't have to listen to this, and I'm not going to. You settle it yourself. So it's likely they were talking about Jewish law. He drives off the, the leader of the synagogue, and not only does he drive him off, but this guy ends up being beat in front of the people by the crowd, and there's no concern shown whatsoever. Now, what's interesting about this is the same synagogue leader is mentioned in 1 Corinthians as somebody who was a believer. And so the question is, was he a believer before the proconsul thing, and he was trying to stand up for him, and they uh, were like, no, you're a, you're a synthesizer or a sympathizer, and we're not going to uh, listen to you? Or... You know, some people brought this up, and I hope this isn't the case, but maybe the beating beat some sense into his brain, is what they were saying. Like, maybe he became a believer after he got beat by these people. Uh, I hope that's not the reasoning, but I guess it's always possible. But notice here, 
God told them, hey, do not fear. Nobody in the city is going to harm you. And then we get an example where they try to have Paul arrested. They try to bring these charges against Paul, and God comes through. He's safe. He's protected from what happens. And so here, I think, is the second thing that we need to, to remember from this text, and it's this. Do not fear. God is with you. Do not fear. God is with you. Like I said earlier, imagine Paul's thinking here, such relief, yes, I can stay, I can preach, I don't have to worry about oppression, like I don't have to worry about this stuff because God has promised me that I am going to be safe, I am good, I don't have to live in fear, and so what does he do? It says he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching from the word of God. Because he had that promise, he was not afraid, and he continued to preach and teach. And see, the same thing applies to us today. We don't have to be afraid. God is with us. God tells us He is with us. So what are the things in your life that you are choosing not to do out of fear? Who's the person that you should be speaking to that you haven't because you're afraid? What's the thing that God has called you to do that you haven't done because you are afraid? Find assurance in knowing that you don't have to fear. God is with you. Isaiah 41.10 says this, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Joshua 1.9 reminds us, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And yes, Sometimes we're going to face difficulty in doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes we are going to face uh, oppression. We are going to face difficulty. And it's not always going to be easy. Doing what God has called us to do is not always going to be easy. Sometimes there's going to be pain. Sometimes there's going to be difficulties. But if we are putting off what God is calling us to do, this urge that we're, we're kicking away because we're just afraid... What are we missing doing because of that fear? We don't have to fear because God is with us. Verse 18, the text continues. It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at uh, Sennacherib because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend some more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he stays in Corinth for a little longer, and then he goes with Priscilla and Aquila, and they arrive at Ephesus, where Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila. He goes into the synagogues, and he reasons with the Jews, and it's working. They want to hear more about it, and then notice what he does here. It says, when they asked him to spend some more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Now, 
this isn't in the bulletin insert, but here's another thing that I think we can take from this if we want to write this down. It's okay to say no. It's okay to say no. We have this mindset sometimes that we have to say yes to every single thing put in front of us. Sometimes it's okay to say no. And, and he could have stayed and he could have kept preaching and teaching and, and doing some good things. He didn't want to. First of all, he wanted to get back to Jerusalem and Antioch. He wanted, in all honesty, it sounds to me reading this, he wanted to go home for a little bit. He wanted to go home. He needed to go and be refreshed and be built back up by his home church. And so he says, no. And he tells him, but if it's God's will, then I will come back. And what does he do in chapter 19? He goes back. But sometimes it is okay to say no. You don't have to say yes to everything. Sometimes if you have this idea of, I have to say yes to every single thing put in front of me, you're going to burn out. And if you are burnout, out, what good are you going to be for the kingdom? Sometimes it is okay to say no. And so he goes to Jerusalem, he greets the church, and he goes back to Antioch. And he spends some time in Antioch, recharging, refreshing. And then he decides to go back, and he travels throughout all these places, and starts his next wave of uh, his travels, his last set of travels. But there's still a, a story here that takes place in verse 24. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. He taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So we meet this man named Apollos. He will play an important role in the church. But when we meet him here, it tells us that this man is a learned man. He's got a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He has been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately through he knew only the baptism of John. He was doing all of these good things, all of these amazing things. He was, he was speaking. He was well-learned. He, he was a sharp guy. Here's the problem. He didn't have the whole picture. He didn't have the whole picture. His knowledge ended with the baptism of John. He didn't know about the death of Christ. He didn't know about the resurrection. He didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about these things. His picture was incomplete. And that's why Priscilla and Aquila do something so important. They hear what he has to say. They invite him to their home and they explain to him the way of God more accurately or adequately. They, they want him to get the whole picture. They want him to know the whole story, not just a, a chunk of the story. He needs to know the whole story. And so they give him the whole story. I, I like how Warren Wiersbe uh, talks about this. He says, when I travel in conference ministry, I depend on my wife to plan the routes and do the navigating. He said, if it were, up, if it were just left to me, I'd get lost in parking lots. He said, on one particular trip, we got confused because we could not find a certain road. Then we discovered that our map was out of date. We quickly obtained a new map and everything was fine. 
You see, Apollos had an old map that had been accurate in its day, but he desperately needed a new one. That new map was supplied by Aquila and Priscilla. He was working with an incomplete map. If you try to uh, navigate, and you know we don't have to do that much now because we have GPS units, but even sometimes our GPS units lead us astray. Sometimes we just need to change the map. And he had an incomplete map. And so they tell him the rest of the story. And, and notice what happens next in verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. It's amazing what you can do if you have the whole picture, right? If you have the whole thing laid out in front of you, it's amazing what you can do because now Apollos has the whole story and what does he do? He goes and he takes the whole story with him and, and they say, you need to let this guy come and, and help you because he is on fire, he is, he is smart, he is educated, he will help you greatly. And he goes and he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate. He was out there debating with people, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. When you have the whole picture, it's amazing what you can do. And here's the thing I think that we can learn from this. We have to share the gospel. That's what it comes down to. That is what our job is, to share the gospel we all have different gifts. We all have different things that God has given us to use, but it's all for the same purpose, pointing people to the gospel. We have to share the gospel. How many people do you know who are walking around in life with an incomplete picture, an incomplete roadmap, the wrong roadmap? They're following it all over the place, and it's leading them nowhere. You have the real map. You have the roadmap. It's all laid out in front of you. Are you sharing it with people? We need to be ready all the time to share the gospel with people around us. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be ready, in season, out of season, always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. You should always be ready to share this with everybody that you meet. God is placing people around you in your life to share the message with. Are you sharing the gospel? 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the responsibility to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. He brought you out of sin. He brought you out of death. He brought you out of darkness. You have a responsibility to share that light with people. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
Man, we have a responsibility to share the word. We all have a job to do. And we have different gifts that God has given us to accomplish the same goal, which is share the gospel. Maybe your gift isn't to stand up and, and, and preach in front of large audience. Maybe your, job, or your gift isn't to uh, sing up on the stage. You know, you don't want me singing up there. Um, I recognize that's not my gift. We all have different gifts with the same purpose, the same task to share the gospel. Are we sharing the gospel with our family members, with our friends, with our co-workers who are asking questions? Are we sharing the gospel? And so here's the thing, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, guys, we all have a part to play. We all have a part to play in, the, in, in ministry, whether it's praying for people, encouraging people, sharing the gospel with people. That's the end goal. Sharing the gospel with everybody is what we're pointing people to. We all have a part to play. But if you are living life afraid to play your part because of what people may say or what people may do, you can find rest knowing that God is with you. He is beside you as you do these things. And sometimes it's going to be hard. And sometimes people may not want to hear what you have to say. But know that God is with you through all of this. And share the gospel. People are living in this world with roadmaps that are leading them nowhere. And if you have the road map that leads to salvation, why would you not give people the right map? People need the map. We have a responsibility to share the gospel. And maybe this morning you haven't been living the way God has called you to and and maybe it's not that you've been afraid or maybe it's that you've not been sharing or maybe it's just simply you've been living kind of apart from him you've been living in a distance from him busyness the stresses of life have kept have kept you from from walking with him and maybe this morning you need to spend some time talking with him reconnecting with him if you need to come up here and pray i'd love to pray with you any of the elders would love to pray with you maybe this morning you can't share the roadmap that you don't have yourself maybe this morning you need that map Maybe you need to give your life to him. And on our connect cards, there's a spot for you to make a decision. Or if you want to come up here and and, and talk, I'd love to do that. But guys, we have a part to play in this task that God has called us to, to, to do ministry for him, to point people to him, to share him with those around us. Do not be afraid. God is with us and he's beside you and he's walking with you and he's helping you. All you got to do is lean on him and trust in him. If you have a decision to make this morning, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing.